0: great to be with you guys. I've heard about uh, this group. Well, I mean, I've been in Nashville for 10 years, so I've heard about you guys quite a bit. And I'm sorry it's taken so long to uh, to get together, but I didn't know there were biscuits and gravy involved. Nothing against you guys, but I would have been here a lot faster <laughs> if I have known that. Um, well, Wes is, uh, Wes is my literary agent. As you guys know, that's kind of what he does, and Uh, We've worked on a number of books together, and uh, I'm working on a book now, and if you don't mind, I'll just kind of ramble about it, because sometimes you get in front of a group of people and ramble about it, and you get some feedback and things like that, and it helps a lot. Uh, But the book also fits where many of you guys are, because you might be wondering, hey, what's next? What am I gonna be doing? Uh, I've got all this wisdom, but I don't know how to package it in such a way to help the next generation. And uh, this book deals with a little bit of those themes. The book is called The Narrative Leader, And the premise is that really great leaders throughout history have had a specific sort of cadence of leadership or a, a, a specific methodology. And that is that they invited their stakeholders into a story in which their stakeholders could play a role and be transformed and get really amazing things done. And uh, I've thought about this from a marketing and messaging perspective for a really long time, but always in the back of my mind, I thought this is, this is the key to leadership. This is the key to getting people to pay attention to you and getting things done, is you have to invite them into a story. And we see it over and over in business and in politics, in education, in religion. We see pastors who invite people into a story, grow their churches and grow their impact. And adversely, we see people who have a lot of wisdom but who don't know how to invite people into a story get ignored. And what's really sad about that is they've gotten a lot of wisdom. They've got a lot to share, but nobody's paying attention to them. So these are the ideas that I began to explore. Uh, I thought I was gonna get the book done in about a year and got into it and thought this might be two years. Or it might be one of those things where you just research it forever and then you take it with you to your grave and never influences anybody. Which would be great with my wife. But I got bills to pay, so I gotta get this book out. All right, so here's my thoughts on the idea the the idea is that, that if a leader runs a narrative leadership campaign, people will pay attention. And if they don't, people will ignore them regardless of how good their ideas are. Let's just look at some examples of this. Uh, Years ago, 10 years ago now, however many years ago, I got a call from a friend of mine, Pierce Bush. Pierce lives in Texas. He's the grandson of George H.W., and he runs a mentoring organization there. Well, he runs, uh, he's the CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters out in Texas. And uh, I had a mentoring organization, so he and I got in touch, we became friends. And he called me during the Republican primaries. I'll talk a little bit about politics, so hope I don't step on anybody's toes. I am neither a Republican or a Democrat. In, in my opinion, there are two major things wrong with America, and they are the Republicans and the Democrats. And honestly, if we get rid of all those people, we will have a blind conversation and make progress. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Pierce called and said, hey, will you go down to Miami and talk to my uncle? He's running for president, and he's, he's not doing well. And uh, talk to him about all this narrative leadership stuff. And I said, I said yeah. And uh, so I went down to Miami, and um, Jeff Bush had written a book on immigration. He had written a book on education. He was, in my opinion, qualified to be president. He was probably my guy. And he's at 3% in the polls, and he's losing to a television personality named Donald Trump. And the whole country at the time was mystified by what was happening and couldn't exactly understand. I understood all of it. understood exactly why it was happening. And uh, went down and explained to Jeb Bush these concepts. Actually, I explained to his team. I did not meet with Jeff Bush. I met with his, uh, his political team. And um, they said to me, listen, uh, Jeb is a very smart guy. He's a scholarly guy. He is not going to reduce his philosophy of government or what he wants to do or his vision into repeatable sound bites. He is not going to do it. And I thought, well, he is not going to be president. (laughs) That's exactly what you have to do. And I left those guys saying one thing. I said, look, you were doing everything right to prepare this man to be president and nothing to get him elected. And uh, and then I was in Finland speaking to about 8,000 entrepreneurs at the Nordic Business Forum and uh, 8,000 entrepreneurs in this giant arena, and I wanted to test how well the messaging was working coming out of the United States. And so I said, if any of you have you ever heard of a guy named Jeb Bush? And nobody raised their hand, and I said, can anybody tell me what Jeb Bush wants to do with America? And nobody knew, and I said, can you tell me what Donald Trump wants to do with America? And 8,000 people in a Scandinavian accent said, make America great again. <laughs> Uh, And so I want to explore why that is just a little bit this morning, and the book will sort of explore that well as well. Uh, I think it's because when people go to the polls, not that they they, they, Honestly, the the statistics would say that only about 15% of Republican primary voters are actually loyal to Donald Trump. It's a very small number. Another 15% are kind of loyal. They can have their mind changed, and another 30% are willing to Uh, vote for them, and then a small percentage just don't like it. So you talk about a a very small number of people who gets to decide who we vote for, for uh, president. That's also true, by the way, on the Democratic side. You know, The further left you get, you got about 15% who are loyal, and then it's about the same. But that 15% is really, really powerful. And what that 15% is actually responding to is a narrative. What they like is not actually Donald Trump. What they like is a clear, cohesive narrative that they can get behind. And what you see in the field is almost nobody else with a clear narrative. And so there were many people, I don't know if you guys remember, but there were many people out there in the body politic who could not decide between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Do you remember that? They were split between those two. The far left and the far, and then what they were actually saying was, these are the only two who actually have a clear narrative I can understand, right? Everybody else makes the mistake of thinking you vote for a person for president. You don't vote for a person. You vote for a story. And you don't vote for their story, because Donald Trump has never once told his story. He invites you into a story in which you get to play a role combating an enemy who's going to do awful things to you. Most of this is fiction, but it doesn't matter if it's fiction. The mind can't tell the difference hardly between fiction and nonfiction. It just wants a good story. So what that says to me is what if we got the good leaders, what if we educated the good leaders on these human dynamics so that they can lead better and so that they can get people behind their vision? What if we did that? So I'll, I'll explore a little bit of these ideas with you this morning. And uh, the first one is this, it's not something you do, It's actually a change of mindset. It's somebody you are. And you need to become or embody a specific role if you want people to buy into your vision and follow you. And that role is, we call it in my office, we call it the guide. In narrative structures, there are really a few characters that show up in every story. Every movie you watch is gonna have a hero, it's gonna have a victim, it's gonna have a villain, and it's gonna have a guide. And the guide is the character in the story who helps the hero win. The, the story is not about the hero. I mean, it's not about the guide, and the story is about the hero. But the guide is the character that helps the hero win the day. So Yoda is the guide to Luke Skywalker. Uh, Hamish is the guide to Katniss. Uh, Dumbledore be the be one of the guides to Harry Potter. Uh, Mary Poppins is actually the guide to the father in the old movie, Mary Poppins. There's a guide whose job is to help the hero win the day. And rule number one, if you wanna be a narrative leader, is you have to play the guide and not the hero. The story cannot be about you. It can't be about you. It has to be about the people who you are helping. And you are inviting them to play a role in a story that makes their lives better. That's key number one. In fact, if you play the hero, you are bound to be ignored. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of the reasons is that everybody wakes up as a hero in a story. I woke up this morning, knew I needed to come out to Franklin uh, and, you know, had my clothes laid out in the bathroom so I wouldn't wake my wife up, all that kind of stuff. It's a hero who has something they need to accomplish and overcomes a challenge to do it. That's every story you've ever heard. And so we all identify as a protagonist in a story. So the problem is, when you say, hey, Don, what's your story? I say, well, you know, I'm a speaker, and I'm going out to Franklin to meet these guys. So what your subconscious hears is, oh, he's a hero in a story just like me. But we are in separate stories. Don has not entered into my story. He has his own story. And when we play the hero in the story, what we do is we separate ourselves from the community that we're around. However, If uh, we play the guide in a story, we enter into our constituent story. We enter into the story of the people who are around us and they become interested in us because they sense that we can help them win in their story. So what's interesting about the guide character in the story, Gandalf, Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi, remember Daniel in the Karate Kid, right? These are the guides who are helping the hero win. What's interesting about the guide and the story is the guide is actually the strongest character in the story. They are the most capable character, but the story's not about them. The story is about the weak character who is becoming strong. So there's a couple reasons you never want to play the hero in the story as it relates to your leadership. Now I will say, as it relates to your friendships and your family, you do play the hero because that's where you connect with people. But when you step into somebody, a mentee's story, you play the guy, not the hero. There's a couple reasons. One is, as I mentioned, the, guy, the hero is actually a weak character. It's the second most weak character in the story. The victim is the only character that's more weak than the hero. The, the hero's position in the story is, I don't know how to do it, I need help, I'm unwilling to take action, I'm ill-equipped. I'm afraid. So when you actually position yourself as the hero in the story, you are subconsciously telling the people that you are around that you're insecure, afraid, need some help, and are looking for affirmation. And we've all we've all smelled that leader. Raise your hand if you go, yeah, I know a leader like that. Right there, you go. We've all smelled that, and so we have to sort of bury that and say, okay, this story is not about me; it's about these people. You see the rise of Deion Sanders going to Colorado. It was all about his players, you know arguably a narcissist but all about his players right all about the story and where was he you know he's trained in the media he knew to do that Donald Trump you say well is he a narcissist well listen if he's not a narcissist then that's not a thing he's definitely a narcissist But trained in the media, he is wise enough to make the story all about you. You don't know about his wife, or his other wife, or his other wife. You don't know about his kids, or his other kids, that may he franchised himself all across the country. He didn't talk about that. <laughs> Talked about you, and what you should be afraid of, and how he'll be the strong man who rescues you, right? And it works like a charm. He's trained in the media, knows how to get attention. So you want to be the guide, helping the hero win. Otherwise, you will be ignored. And often, never say outside this room that I said this. But in the grand narrative of the world that, as the, as you and I understand it, Jesus is actually not the hero of the story. He's not. He's the guide. He's the one who has already conquered the hero's pain and is now teaching them to live. You're the hero in the story. He's the guide helping the hero in. One of the interesting things about guides and stories is they don't evolve, they don't change. They don't transform, they don't get stronger. They are strong. Where do you think that character came from in the subconscious of the human mind in response to these narratives? It came from Christ. Jesus is the guy, not the hero. And so when Jesus says, "Be like me," he says, "Get over yourself and help somebody else. Stop making it about you. It ain't about you, right?" Often in stories, those tearjerker moments happen when the guy lays down their life for the hero. How many of you raise your hand if you got a little choked up when Tom Hanks died in Saving Private Ryan? Movie scene, guide dying for the hero. It's a formula and it works. It works because I believe it comes from reality that our guide died to bring the hero home. And you and I are heroes. But the great transformation that takes place in life is you earn your stuff, you figure stuff out, you get some wins, you secure your identity, and then you begin realizing this isn't as fulfilling as it used to be. And we tra- we transform and say, you know what, let me help somebody else, and you discover that is fulfilling. I remember interviewing Pete Carroll, I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan, before living here for 10 years, I was in Portland, Oregon for 20 years, and so uh, became a Seahawks fan. And uh, I contacted the Seahawks uh, headquarters there and said, hey, can I get an interview with Coach Carroll? Coach Carroll, T team wrote back and said, you can have 15 minutes. He mm. said, okay, I'll talk fast. So I go up into the Coach Carroll's corner, corner office there. He's got the lake, Lake Washington right there, and, and the practice field, beautiful facility there in Seattle. Two hours later, we're still talking. And it's during the, right before the draft, they're preparing for the draft. They're about to draft a guy named Russell Wilson. And the coaches kept poking their head in the office saying, Coach, you got to get out of here. He goes, hold on. You know, and he keeps talking to me. One of the things that I asked him, I said, hey, you know, you, uh, how did you learn to make it not about yourself? and How did you learn to invite other people into a story? And he said, well, I, I was lucky enough to win at an early age. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I won in sports. I was a good athlete, and I won. And I said, why why was that lucky to have done that early? He goes, because it helped me realize really early that there's nothing fulfilling about it. There's nothing fulfilling about winning. There's a law of diminishing returns. It just means less and less and less. And if you keep chasing that, you're called an addict. And he said, but then what I did was I turned around and helped somebody else win. And that, there is no diminishing return on that satisfaction. Isn't that awesome? Two years later, he goes on to win a Super Bowl. And then almost another, but Russell did not give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. That was the last football game I've ever watched. <laughs> just give him the ball. We gotta stop and just have a moment of silence. All right, so, you know, there's a principle. Principle number one is play the guide, not the hero. And how do you play the guide? Two things that you guys want to remember as you're interacting with people who you are mentoring and you are leading. And by the way, that's a truckload of people. So Don, I don't mentor anybody. That's bullshit. You know it. You mentor a ton of people. It may not be called that, but you do. And so they are watching you. They, you are not. They are watching you and they're seeing how you live. So there's two things that you wanna do that they do in story structure, and I think I've indicated that if they do this and it works in stories, it must come out of some sort of laws of reality. So the, the two things are, one is empathy. Empathy is very important. In order to play the guide, you need to be very empathetic with the pain that your mentee or whoever it is you're influencing, your leadership team is dealing with on a human level. And this is not natural to me. Uh, Jim and Shannara have known me a long time, Wes has known me a long time. You know, I took, I'm an Enneagram three with a (laughs) three-wing. I see any other wing is a waste of time and effort and inefficiency toward getting us a win. right? And then on the disc test, I'm only D, there's nothing else. Literally, I was supposed to give the report to my assistant because it says to my assistant how to work with me. And it literally says, do not talk about anything that does not help him achieve his goals. That's it. (laughs) just don't bring it up. And I thought, that's a monster. So I just didn't give it to them. Because it wouldn't help me achieve my goals. This is new to me. I mean, sitting down and really connecting with people on a heart level without trying to advance any sort of agenda. You know, Wes said it best in the introduction. He said, you as a person is gonna matter way more than you and your ideas. Just being there, and of course, as we get older, we realize that, we wish we'd have known that when we were younger. But to be able to ask questions, and what what I've learned, and I learned this from a guy named Michael Bungay-Stanger. He wrote a book called The Coaching Habit. It's a really good book. Uh, He said, you know, whenever you ask a question, ask a follow-up question, and then ask another follow-up. In other words, ask, tell me more about that. And how did that make you feel? And as guides, what we want to do is we want to keep asking questions till we find something that pulls at our hearts and connects our two hearts. And then when you finally say, I remember when I lost my life. Right? And now we're, we're there. So the first thing is to connect. And the way you connect is through empathy. But empathy can't work by itself. It has to be paired with another characteristic in order for us to be seen as the guide and to have people follow our leadership. And the other thing it has to be paired with is competency. We actually have to know what we are doing. We can't be incompetent. So caring about somebody and being their friend and not knowing what we're doing is not good leadership. The one and the two punch have to go together, and you say, "Well, Don, the next generation doesn't like authoritarian figures, and they don't want you know chain of command leadership." And all it's crap. That's not true at all. If you take a twenty-something to a nutritionist, and that twenty-something says, "I need to lose about thirty pounds," it's driving me crazy. I don't know what I'm doing. And the nutritionist says, "Me too." <laughs> We're at the wrong nutritionist. <laughs> So every story starts with a hero in a hole. And the guide, by the way, doesn't rescue the hero. They just teach them to get out of the hole. And the guide has to empathize, but also know how to get out of the hole. And one of the things that we want to do as men, as guys, because I'm in a room full of guys right now. One of the things you want to do is be able to say, hey, what holes do I know how to get people out of? And identify those. Are they marital problem holes? Are they dad holes? This guy's yelling at his kids and you know he's scarring them and he doesn't know it? Right? I know how to get him out of that hole. But if you can identify the holes I'm good at getting out of, it will give you a vision for your life. Because now you know wait, I know how to get out of that hole. I know how to save a ton of money on taxes. I know how to, you know, whatever. Identify those holes and know that you're, and then look around for people in them. And then empathize with those people. And you'll be helping. You'll be doing exactly what Jesus did in his life. All right, there's there's a couple other things that that you want to do as a narrative leader. There's three. First, the big one is play the the guide, not the hero. That's the big one. Uh, the, The three things you do as the guide, though, is one, you cast a vision. If you want to... If you want to change the world, you have to have a vision for what you want the world to actually look like. Now, going back to politics, and again, I'm no fan of either of either. Not not really a fan of either party. I think that you know there's some politicians I like out there. I don't mean to be totally totally negative, but one of the things that um, was true in our recent political history is that as as Interesting as it was, Donald Trump was casting a sort of vision, right? Make America great again. When I went down to see Jeb Bush's team, his tagline for his campaign, his campaign mantra, whatever he call it, was Jeb can fix it. <coughs> now, who's the hero? Yeah. Jeb, what do we know about playing the hero? We yeah, people, people go, oh, I hope, you, I hope you have a good story. I'm going to go, they can't figure out what's in it for me. They see what's in it for you. Hmm. But what's in it for me? If my mission statement of my company was to make me millions, do you think my team would be, <laughs> we gotta get down that money. He's <laughs> gotta get that expensive cold plunge in his garage. You no, it's not gonna happen. Right, so it, 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 there's a vision that, that we have to have, and, um, and, and that vision has to be on behalf of the people that we're, on behalf of the stakeholders that we're interacting with. This is a, a big deal two rules on that vision it's got to be singular you can't have 10 if there are 10 things if we, we go to a movie and it's about a it's about a young man who wants to marry a woman and also win win a race and also lose 30 pounds and also adopt a cat we got too much stuff right so it's one singular repeatable vision that you have and this is why we exist i exist to help people do this right uh the next one and this is even harder for a lot of us in the room is it it can't be vague the vision can't be vague it can't be elusive you know i'll i'll review in marketing collateral i'll review websites and i'll go to somebody's website and it'll say trust is the commodity we exchange no idea what that means or what that (laughs) It sounds smart, but it means nothing, right? Uh, no, our, you know, there was a, a campaign in the NFL, it's still going on, I think, but they were painting in the end zone for maybe three or four games out of the season the words um, crucial catch, and there were these colorful bars in the, in the end zone. And when I first saw that, I thought, oh, that's a Kodak camera, Polaroid camera campaign. They must be selling digital cameras like catch the picture, you know? turned out, two weeks later, I find out it's a cancer awareness campaign. How did that happen? Yeah, well, some ad execs got around a table in a room and said, well, how do we help people more care? Well, you know, if you catch cancer early, you can stop it. We, we gotta catch a ball in the end so It's a crucial catch it's a crucial catch if you catch cancer. Hey, let's break crucial catch in the end zone. So they failed to realize nobody else was gonna be in the room or was in the room when they came up with that idea. So at the end of distribution, all they did was pay millions of dollars to confuse everybody. It was a cancer awareness campaign that I thought was trying to sell me a digital camera. That's how bad that (laughs) campaign was. But if you would've painted in the end zone, promise us you'll get screened for breast cancer. That's it. Promise us you'll get screened for breast cancer. How many lives do you think they would've saved? But they wanted to be cute and clever and sound interesting. And so they don't get to accomplish their agenda because they're trying to make it sound like poetry. No, don't do it. Make America great again. Right? That's it. Uh, The next thing that you actually want to do is almost as important as the first thing in casting a vision. If we want to get people following our leadership, the thing that we want to do most er, also is identify the threats that this vision is protecting you from. This is a big one. And it's, it's the thing that Trump was so good at that Bush was not. Uh, Jeb Bush was not. Identifying what's going to hurt you, what's going to take you down, what you should be afraid of. Now, that is classic manipulation. But it says something about the way the human brain responds to it. If, If your vision isn't protecting us from something dangerous or hard or whatever, it loses narrative interest. Because by God, I am literally designed to protect myself from threats at all times. In fact, my mind is always thinking about what could take me down, that's why I look both ways before I crossed the street, right? You, uh, you, you're always thinking about threats, and it's God's, you're an animal, and God designed your mind to keep you on the planet, it's its dominant job. And so it becomes very good at finding threats. In fact, the brain is so focused on finding threats, if there are 10 good things happening and one bad thing happening, right? What are you gonna focus on? There are 10 old friends in a room and one stranger with a gun. What are you gonna focus on? Well, hold on, let me say hi to my friends. (laughs) No, in fact, it's true in literature. If you read a book, any good book that you've read, James Patterson, or any of these spy novels, every page is full of conflict. I teach this. Uh, I teach a writing course sometimes at my house. We have this kind of event space behind the house, and there's about a 1,000 books on the bookshelf. And I do this exercise with everybody writing. I say, hey, one of you go over to the bookshelf and pull a book off of it. And somebody gets up, they go, they pull a book off the shelf. I say, open the book up, and put your finger down on any paragraph open book, put the finger on paragraph. I go, that paragraph is about conflict. Something hard is happening in that paragraph. And then they read it, and it is. Because I only have good books on my shelf. And I know, if you pick up Harry Potter, every single paragraph, even a memoir, Frank McCourt's, if you read Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes, raise your hand if you read that book. If you haven't read that book, you gotta read that book. You want a Pulitzer, I think. Put a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer Prize. Maybe both. Anyway, you put your finger down in your paragraph, and something hard is happening to a young Irish kid, starving, right? What well, something's going on? Kids are just nuns are beating them up. Whatever, it's happening right there in that book. Because the human brain is drawn to conflict, and so if we don't say, "Hey, I want to make this happen in the world," so that this doesn't happen, we don't get an audience's attention. The problem is the hook. The last thing, the third thing that you need to run a narrative leadership campaign is what I call a trigger phrase. A trigger phrase is a phrase that you can repeat that encompasses the controlling idea of the narrative leadership campaign. Make America Great Again is a trigger phrase. you know, on and on. We've been doing some writing for the Nikki Haley campaign for America's for Prosperity. The trigger phrase that I wanted to run with was restore our values. If you wanna get through the Republican primary and beat Donald Trump, go with restore our values. Legally, I'm not allowed to talk to the Haley campaign because I'm working with a political action committee, but uh, they did not run with that campaign. And they were gonna, what they were gonna do is look at surveys and then respond in the moment to specific voters on what they care about. And I said, Well, you're gonna you're gonna lose this election. Because you're you're not inviting her into any kind of story. And by the way, that's not leadership, that's called following. When you're looking at polls on what the body politic wants and you're giving them what they want, they're leading. You are not inviting them into a better story. And so you shouldn't be president anyway. So we've gotta we've gotta be able to um, have a trigger phrase that helps. There's a, a company in the marketing world that called Dream Dreambone sells $100 million worth of dog bones a year. And very smart people flying in from all over the world. We met in Florida and kind of spent a day with them. And um, very, very smart people. And going around talking about this narrative leadership stuff and I said, hey, you know, what's the controlling idea of a dream bomb? Like, what do you mean controlling idea? Like, what's the what's the idea that the whole campaign centers around? The idea that you're attempting to get out there into the world? And it, I don't know if we have one. You know, we, we kind of say more healthy than rawhide. I'm like, okay, well, more healthy than rawhide is not going to sell any dog biscuits. And, uh... And I said, you know, I've got, I've had dogs. I've had a chocolate lab that Betsy refers to as my first wife, and we have a, but we're not allowed to marry our dogs because certain politicians frown upon those sorts of things. The world's changing, so we'll get there, man. (laughs) Uh, The only reason I buy a dog bone is to distract my dog. That's it. Like, if I got people coming over, I try to get a big old meaty dog, throw the dog on the back porch, and happy as a clam, right? So what would happen if the best way to distract a dog were on this packaging. And what would happen if five years from now I could stop anybody on the street and I could say, what's the best way to distract a dog? And they say, dream bone. Now you're doing 100 million now. Five years from now you can stop anybody on the street and if I say, what's the best way to distract a dog? And they say, dream bone. How much more money are you making? They said 200 million, I said not 200. million. You're making five billion, right? Because there's a controlling idea And there's a story i've got a dog who needs to be distracted i'm going to use your tool to distract that dog so that i can talk to people at my front door that's the story and your product is a tool and the trigger phrase encompasses and embodies the entire thing Uh, there's a guy down in texas where i grew up in houston named jim mackinvale and jim mackinvale some of you are not in your head. If you're from Houston, you might not know the name, but he goes by Mattress Mac, and everybody in Houston knows who Mattress Mac is. And when I was a kid, there was this guy on television sawing mattresses in half with a chainsaw, saying, I've lost his mind, I've cut my prices in half. That guy's, I mean, he's probably a billionaire by now, he, uh, he, and he's done it with just a catchphrase, a trigger phrase, gallery furniture will save you money. That's it. And he's just repeated it 50 million times. And I think a lot of times we just overthink this. But if you have a vision for a better whatever, a better family, a better church, a better, you know, whatever that vision is, and you can cast that vision and clearly articulate that language. And you've identified the threats that your vision will protect people from. And you have a trigger phrase that embodies the entire campaign. People will follow you. But in order to do that, you have to actually take the time and sit down and think through it. And a lot of us don't like that. We want to wing it because that's authentic and that's genuine and I'm not the sort of person to be calculated and shrewd. I I understand that. I learned a lot when I lived with a Bible scholar. I lived with a a Bible scholar out of Portland for a long time. And he took me through a lot of the Bible, but one of the things that was fascinating was when he took me through the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is written in an ancient Hebrew chiasm. It's an incredibly complicated literary structure. And, it, 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 and he, he even told me, I remember, I'll never forget, he said, a lot of people think Paul wrote this book, the Apostle Paul. He said but the Apostle Paul didn't write this book. And I said, why? What, what do you see? that Apostle Paul, what, he goes, Apostle Paul wasn't smart enough to write this book. <laughs> this story, only scholars can be that arrogant. Anyway. What, what I took from that, the, the Gospel of John is also similar. It's not a kiosk, but it's similar. and um, In the sense that the Gospel of John will, Jesus will give a parable, and then he will do a miracle that matches the parable. And so that is, that's a literary structure. It's a decision to write the book in such a way that you're highlighting this miracle with this parable, even though a lot more happened. You're leaving stuff out in order to guide the, And what that told me was God actually cares about you sitting down and thinking through what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. And he chooses men who are willing to do that, who are willing to not mouth off but sit down with a journal and think it through and then watch the words that come out of their mouths. Two things in closing that happen when we invite people into a story. One, we help them find meaning in their life. If you are not actively involved in a story that is making something beautiful happen, and fending off a threat, you will enter into uh, a narrative void. Victor Frankl writes about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning*. You will begin to struggle with anxiety, depression, a sense of meaninglessness in life. All of that happens not because we got old. It's because our story expired and we didn't start a new one. We are literally sitting in the theater of our mind and the credits are rolling on the story we lived. It ain't nothing happening and we need to just get a new story on that screen right away. Because it gives us a great sense of meaning. need. Another thing that happens to the people that we invite into stories is it helps them transform. We only transform and become better versions of ourselves when we step into a story in which we want something and engage and embrace conflict and have to become the sort of people that that objective requires. All of us, a lot of us are saying, well, I'm not the sort of person to be able to do that. Well, if you step in there and jump into the deep end and drown a little bit, I guarantee you you're going to come out of there swimming, right? And we get into that story, and we transform. And human beings are designed to transform from the day they are born to the day they die. We never stop. And if we do stop transforming, entropy sets in. There has to be a challenge that we are facing, and we are overcoming, and we are inviting people into at the beginning of a story, you see an ill-equipped, immature Luke Skywalker, and at the end he's standing on a podium getting an award, and he's competent. And the whole story was about him going from here to here. And in our lives, we've done that, and now we're turning around, and we're helping somebody else get there. In fact, there's a scene at the end of most movies that's really beautiful. It's when the guide steps back in, steps back into the story and affirms the transformation of the hero. Right? Daniel, in the king's speech, after he gives the speech, says, you, will be a, you are a great king. Because remember earlier in the, the movie, King George is wondering whether the wrong man has been selected to be king. He has no confidence because he has to stutter. Habich uh, hey, says it to Capix. Obi-Wan, Kenobi, and Yoda, the ghosts, literally come up behind, and they're floating there behind the shoulders. a cheesy scene necessary for narrative structure. And we see in we see it in scripture we see us going to heaven, and Jesus affirming our transformation. Well done, my good and faithful servant. It can't come from within us. Everybody in this culture is looking in the mirror trying to change themselves. It will not come from inside of you. It will come from somebody else looking at you going, "You did good." One of the if there's something that I think Satan wants to do in this room. Satan wants to convince every man in this room that your words don't mean anything. And he wants you to say harsh words that you don't think mean anything, but they're tearing people apart. And he wants you to bite your tongue when you have a chance to say, I see something good in you. The men who have done that in my life have changed my life. Forever. And you have that ability if we play the guide and not the hero if we invite people into a story, if we help them fend off conflict and embody that in a well-calculated, well-thought-out trigger phrase that invites people to participate with us. That's it. book will be out in two years. Don't forget, you owe me 10 bucks on Amazon.